Amen, amen. You can't be seated. Glad you're here today that uh, the sleet that started falling earlier didn't keep you away and now on this beautiful spring day that you're here with us. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to be Luke, Luke chapter 23, verses 63, Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bible. Uh, we are continuing looking at Jesus's crucifixion, moving towards his resurrection. We, we, we obviously took some time off for Easter, celebrating the crucifixion and the resurrection. And we're not going to slow down with our study of Luke. The thing is, that don't ever hear me diminish the celebration of Easter in the church together. Please don't misunderstand. That's what, I, what, I, what, I, what I'm about to say. But there's a reality that, that celebrating Easter once a year is like reading the cliff notes of a, of a great story, right? We get the highlights, but we don't really see the depth. And so as we start now, coming out of Easter, we're actually in a place in Luke that we're building towards the crucifixion. Uh, and, and, and there's details here that are important that we shouldn't miss. And so we're not going to. So Luke 23. 22 verses 63 through 71 will be our passage. Before we start, I want to, I want to just ask a question. Just kind of set the, set the tone or set the perspective. I just want you to think about people you know. Have you ever met anyone that has enjoyed rejection? Like the things that they do purposely move them to rejection. I personally don't think I've ever met anyone who would admit it. Now, I think there's people out there who would subconsciously do a lot of stupid things that cause people to reject them. And I think we're twisted and broken enough in our sin that there's probably people out there who do like rejection and in some masochistic way enjoy people telling them how horrible they are. I don't, I don't I think there's probably people who actually do enjoy it. I just never have met anyone who would admit it. And so as I thought about this, I, I thought about how, how, how much that takes effect on our life, how, how big a how big an issue that is to us, this, this fear of rejection, driven also by this competing desire to be accepted, to be received, to be, to, 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 for people to receive us and not look down on us because of the things that we like or the peoples that we love or the things that we do. We, we want to be received. We want to be affirmed. We want people to approve of how we look, right? Like there's a big, massive pressure on us, especially in our culture today, about how we look and how we dress. And, and, and how, people are really concerned about that. They want to be affirmed in that. We want our ideas and our, our opinions to be agreed with. We want to be received for who we are. We're scared to death. We have this, I mean, I think it's a, a fear, a major fear of being rejected such that rather than presenting who we are, we often present an image of ourselves so that people that we think people will like. So you've known people who are chameleons. They're one thing in one circumstance, another thing in another circumstance, another thing in another circumstance, so that, that those people will like them. We, we fear being rejected so much that, that we, um, you know, rather than speak our mind, we'll talk about, we'll, we will adopt the opinions of the group and we'll sit silent instead of saying things that we perceive or think. We fear being rejected for how we look so much that, that I mean, we'll go to great lengths. To, people will go so far as to, to have surgery on their bodies to shape them. We, they, they spend massive amounts of money on clothes so that we 
look a certain way. I mean, even in the press, I mean, that's, that's a major piece of what goes on is what people are wearing. Like, who cares what the president's wife wears? Just be glad she's wearing something, right? I mean, this is the reality of the circumstance we live in. I mean, seriously, that's the thing. But, but no, 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 we got to be concerned. And not only do we need to be concerned about what she's wearing, we're so concerned about what we wear, we'll put ourselves in debt. We fear being rejected. We fear being rejected so much that we put ourselves out there in such a way that people don't really have an opportunity to affirm the real us. And this has haunted us. This isn't, this isn't new to us as adults. You're sitting in here as adults. This isn't new to us as adults. I mean, the reality is we feel and know the sting of rejection from the time we were kids. You remember the first elementary friend that you had that quit being your friend because their interests changed or, their, or, or your interests changed and suddenly they just didn't want to be your friend anymore? We know that sting of rejection. We know the fear of rejection. You remember in, the middle, in middle school, the first time you had to ask someone to dance or, or not be asked to dance because, oh, nobody likes me. That, that fear that something's going to happen and you're not going to be affirmed in your perspective. That middle school dance, man, it'll just mess kids up. I'm, I'm scared to death. She's going to say no. I'm scared to death. Nobody's going to ask me to dance. So we'll begin to act in ways and do things that we think will encourage acceptance, affirmation. It even follows us into adulthood and even our Christian faith. One of the, one of the primary reasons that, that Christians give for not evangelizing, for not telling others about Jesus, is their fear of rejection. Now, they may not state it as a fear of rejection, but what if they ask a question I can't answer? That's a fear of not being smart enough and not being received as one who has the answers. There's rejection there. Well, what if they get mad at me? I want to be liked. I want to be received. I want to be affirmed. So we, I, I, I just can't tell them. So out of a fear of rejection from the world, we deny the truths about God. Interesting thing is, is that in this passage that we're studying today, Jesus is faced with a very similar set of circumstances. He, he is going to face rejection. Yeah. The thing is, is that he, 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 is already, he already knows the Father's will. Like that was determined the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew in praying to his Father, not my will but yours be done. He knew what the Father's will was. He knew what was coming after he rose up out of prayer, after he finished praying and walked out into the clearing with his apostles. And the, and the party led by Judas comes and Judas betrays him and they arrest him. He knows his Father's will. Don't we? Know our Father's will? He knew. He knew that they were there to arrest him because of the ministry he had done, the image he had presented, the, the identity that he had established. And he knew that he was about to face trials and they would want him to renounce 
what he'd been teaching. They wanted him to deny the truth of his identity and reject his father's will. But he knew he couldn't do it. He knew he wouldn't do it. You see, in the midst of all these trials, first by the Jews and by the Romans, Jesus is going to be rejected. Because he won't do the one thing that we seem so quick to do. He won't deny who he is, and he won't deny his Father's will for his life so that he can be received in the world. And that's what's about to happen. And that's what's about to unfold in his life. Let's read so that you don't have to just take my word for it. You can see it in the scripture. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, just kind of just to wrap your head around it, just think about what's happening in this moment. Jesus in the garden has been, has been restrained and they've led him away. They've led him to, to uh, the high priest's house. They brought him into his courtyard and they placed a guard on him. These aren't Roman guards. These, these are Jewish guards, probably guards in the temple. They were certainly people who had come out into the, into the garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives and, and taken Jesus by force. And now they're watching over Jesus, that he doesn't run away or that he doesn't do something that, 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 would, uh, that, that would keep them from carrying out their will against him. And they're beating him, mocking him. They blindfolded him. I mean, the, the atrocity of this, this is, the, this is the kind of stuff today, I mean, our sense of justice and injustice, we, we see it in the news all the time when we get frustrated when people in power oppress others. I mean, it, it frustrates us to the point we stand up and scream about CNN. If CNN existed at this time, they would have been, been running the YouTube videos all over the place trying to show us just how horrible these people were to Jesus. Well, Maybe. But the thing is, is that there, th th this is a man who is, being, who is having every, every perspective, every, every injustice being worked against him could be worked against him. Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things that against him, many other things against him. It's almost like Luke doesn't want to show us the whole picture because it's too grotesque. said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And that goes on all night. That kind, of, that kind of thing happens all night long. When the day came, the assembly of the elders, verse 66, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Notice that's not a denial. That, that he's not saying no, but he's saying if I affirm this for you, you're not going to believe it. Why should I affirm it? If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. If I, if I say, do you think I'm the Christ? You're not going to answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said to him, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. 
Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. See, from the moment that Jesus finished praying in the garden, from the moment that he finished praying and walked out in that clearing and that party came to arrest him and the betrayer leading them comes in and and kisses him on the cheek, we begin to see this ever-increasing, growing circle of rejection and isolation. And Jesus will not cower in front of it. He will not submit to this fear of rejection. He will not make choices so that he will not be rejected horizontally because he intends to be received vertically. Here's the idea. You see, Jesus goes out from the prayer. He finds his apostles sleeping. He's like, what are you doing? Pray. Judas leads in this party to arrest him, kisses him on the cheek. And and Jesus, we know this from John. Jesus says, hey, since you're here to get me, leave these guys alone. And so they do. And they take Jesus off, leaving the disciples. You know where the disciples go? Hide. In fact, when we see them at the crucifixion, they are watching from a distance. They don't want to be associated. They don't want to feel the real wrath or the real weight of the the connection that they have to Jesus. They're they're, they're watching from a distance. Even Peter and John, who who got up the nerve to, to follow Jesus. Peter and John follow at a distance. And we know from the passage that we studied a couple of weeks ago, before the night was over, not only had the disciples left him, but Peter has denied him. I don't have anything to do with him. I don't have any connection with him. I do not know him. And here are these Jewish leaders working their part of the plan, judging Jesus, trying him, putting him on trial. For the very purpose of rejecting him. By the time this night is over, by the time the next day is over, Jesus will not just have been rejected and isolated from his disciples, his closest followers. He will be rejected by the Jewish leaders who will take him to Pilate and the Roman leaders, the Roman government as a representative of the Roman government. The Romans are going to reject him. And then in, in one last ditch effort as Pilate seeks to remove himself or absolve himself of responsibility of this. He presents to them the opportunity to have Jesus or Barabbas and not only now have the Jewish leaders and the, and the Roman leaders rejected Jesus, but as they stand in the courtyard crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, the representatives of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, have rejected him. That he would hang on a cross and die. This ever-growing process, this ever-growing... I mean, this makes the walk into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit look like, look like child's play. Man, he's just going to be tempted by the devil. To hear every aspect of relationship that he has ever had. He is going to sense the rejection of the whole world. And even in some brief moment, hanging on the cross... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This ever-growing circle, this ever-broadening circle of rejection and isolation growing around Jesus to the point that he is going to hang all alone on the cross. Our sacrifice. And not once Not at one moment, not for a glimpse, not for a 
fraction of a second, not for a glimmer, of, not, not, not for anything, does he sacrifice his identity or the will of his father? He receives the rejection. And here we see that the spotlight falling on those, those Jewish leaders and their agents as Jesus is being brought in and put on trial. Jesus, the Son of God, being put on trial. Luke doesn't show us everything. He doesn't give us all of the details. He gives us just enough to, to see and understand what's happening. But we can put the Gospels together. We can harmonize the Gospel accounts and we can see that this, that this trial took place in phases. First, he's brought to the house of Annas. Annas was the, the high priest, or previously was the high priest. He still held, held power. He still held sway in the Jewish leadership. So they bring him to Annas, and Annas is, begins to question him. When Annas is finished questioning him, he sends him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the current high priest, and he was the leader of the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas is now, then, then is, is, first we learn in John that he went to Annas, then in Mark and in Matthew we learn that, that at night Jesus was brought to Caiaphas before the Sanhedrin, which Caiaphas is the leader of the Sanhedrin. He's the high priest and leader of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. It's kind of like, uh, you might say, like the Supreme Court or, or the Senate. They, set, you know, they, they kept everything in order. They led and set laws and rules for these people. And at night, he's brought to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. We don't see that in Luke. All we see is how he's treated at night by those holding him, holding, guarding him, and, and keeping watch on him. But their code of conduct, the, the rules that they followed, didn't allow them to hold a trial at night. It didn't allow for the Sanhedrin to gather and condemn a man or try a man for, for some charge against him at night. That, so what, what had to happen is that the Sanhedrin had to convene again in the morning, probably just as soon as their code of conduct would allow, the rules that they followed would allow. They had to gather together and make official what they'd already determined the night before. Jesus is guilty. We will condemn him. We will reject him. You see, the, the thing is, Luke shows us just enough that we see through these events exactly what was going on across the breadth of them. We see the guards beating him, mocking him, ridiculing him, challenging him on his identity as a prophet. We see the, the Jewish council that morning as they convened, legally convened at that point, trying him on his identity as the Christ. He affirms himself as the Son of Man, and then they question him, are you the Son of God? And he affirms it. So we see two critical things happen. Jesus has affirmed his identity. He would not deny who he was. He would not deny what he had come to do. He would not disobey his Father's will to keep from being rejected. He would not reject his Father to be received by the people of the world. It's all, this is the only choice he had. To be received in the world, he'd have to re reject his Father. To live in the truth of who he was and what he'd been sent to do, he had to be rejected by the world. And at every point, the Jewish leaders and their agents are living up to this. They 
reject him. They reject him as a prophet, as the Christ, as the Son of Man, and the Son of God. And we see that all the way through this passage, these two things that Luke has shown us. And this is why it's important. This is why Luke has shown it to us this way. His purpose is to prove to us who the Christ is, who Jesus is. Remember, you go all the way back to what he wrote when he opened the letter. I wrote this account. I wrote these things down, Theophilus, oh, excellent Theophilus, so that you would know, so that you could be confident in the things that you've heard about Jesus. So that you would see him who, for who he is and for what he'd come to do. So that you could be confident. So that you could know these things are true. And here, he's showing it to us again. He's been showing it to us all the way through. He's been proving Jesus' identity. He's been, he's been proving Jesus' mission. But here now, under the threat of complete and utter rejection by the people that God, the, the, the chosen people of God, by the Jewish nation. Jesus will not relent. He will not submit to them. If Jesus had, had, had wanted to at any point, he could have ended this. Now, I don't, I, here, here's, I don't think this would have gone good for him. It's not like if he'd have said, no, I'm not the Christ, no, I'm not the Son of God. I, I think the trial would have ended I don't think they would have like patted him on the back. Man, we're glad you said that. Now let's be friends and let's go on. I, I don't think that's how it would have gone. I think they still would have been like, we've got to figure out how to, how to deal with this. But it wouldn't have gone where it went next. It wouldn't have ended the next, that, 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 that day with him on a cross and being laid in the grave. But he wouldn't. He didn't. He would not. He would not bow to the pressures of the rejection of the people to live in a lie, to live in any way that would defame who he is or what he came to do. And there's irony all over. There's so much irony dripping across this passage. The Jewish leaders, they think they are serving God. I mean, just think about it. If Jesus is an imposter, if he is not the Christ, if he is not the Son of God, if he is not a prophet, he should be stopped. I mean, we're quick to recognize this in our day and age, right? I mean, when someone like Joel Osteen gets up and begins to preach, we're like, whoa, don't listen to him. Some of the things he says are true, but there's a lot of lies coming from his mouth that, that demonstrate he's not someone you should follow. We're quick to call out heresy in our circles because we love the word of God and we believe it's true. We're quick to call it out. If Jesus is a heretic, if he is the blasphemer that they said he was, then he should be called out. And these Jewish leaders, they think they're serving God. The irony is that instead of serving him, they're opposing him. Take it a step further, their, their opposition to Jesus and the work that he's doing, it's not really slowing down God's plan, it's actually becoming a part of God's plan. Who do they think they are? How in the world could they stand in the way of God's plan? Of course, they don't think they are, but 
But this double irony, it's almost like a double negative, right? I, I don't even know how to say a double negative right now. I could probably say it if I'm just getting excited, but when you, when you say no twice, all of a sudden, sudden it becomes a positive. Well, this double irony, this, this idea that they're standing in opposition to the enemy of God, their opposition becomes the very part of the plan that God needed to take place, that God had prof- prophesied and God had planned to take place. And finally, one more piece of irony. By rejecting and condemning Jesus, they actually bring condemnation on themselves. It'd be really easy to look at them and think they get what they deserve. But you know what they get? We should be pitying them. You see, Jesus is their Christ. The one that they had been waiting for for generations. The one that that, that parents had been telling their children about for generations was coming. The Messiah, the one who was coming to deliver God's people. The one that they had grown up hearing about. The Messiah that they were waiting for. This was him. He was the Christ. He is the Christ. He is God's son. He is God in flesh. He had been sent by God for forgiveness and redemption. He is God's plan to fulfill his promises to Abraham that that through Abraham would be a blessing to all nations and and his promise to David that, that God would establish his throne forever. This is Jesus. And in their rejection of him, they're condemned. They're placed outside of God's kingdom. Listen, this, I, I think this is the, the, the heart of the application, the, 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 the very most important piece that we can take from this as we, as we recognize Jesus' identity, as we recognize that Jesus won't cower to rejection because he cannot walk in a lie. He must stand in truth. We must recognize this. Any investigation or judgment that does not affirm Jesus' divine identity does not condemn him, but the one who rejects him. You see, we can't put Jesus on trial and think that we're going to outsmart him or outwit him or outtruth him. We can't undermine the truth of who Jesus is or what he came to do. And instead, we put him on trial, we find ourselves judging him and being judged for it. Because Jesus is who he presented himself to be, these Jewish leaders begin their investigation already having determined that they would not receive him. And as they cast judgment on him, they actually cast judgment on themselves. And that truth is still true today. We can put Jesus on trial if we want. I just don't think it's advisable. Jesus has shown himself to be who he is. He has proven what his mission is. Most of the time when we're seeking to, when we're doubting Jesus, he's not giving us enough evidence or we're rejecting Jesus because he's not told us enough 
This is not because there's a lacking of evidence of Jesus' affirmation of his identity and his mission. It's a refusal to receive what's been there all along. See, Jesus is the promised prophet. Jesus is the prophet of God. He is the one promised by God to come. Let's look at this. In verse 63 through 65, you have Jesus on trial, not, not officially, but in front of these guards, these ones, not Roman guards, Jewish people watching over him, blindfolding him. Oh, you're a prophet? Prove you're a prophet. Tell us who struck you. Tell us who's beating you. Tell us what, what's going on around you. You prophesy to us. They're pressing him to prove that he's a prophet. They're pressing him because if he would just act for them, if he would just do the right thing for them, maybe they would believe. And maybe there's reason to believe he's a prophet, but no, he's not. He's not, he's not cowering to, or, or, or giving in. He, he takes it. He receives it. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't say anything in return. He's beaten and mocked and ridiculed. He doesn't present, he doesn't, he doesn't perform any part of the tricks for these people. But another piece of irony. Exactly what's happening in that moment. He has prophesied. Because he is a prophet. Luke 18, we don't have to go far into his ministry. We don't have to go far back to see this. Luke 18, 31 through 32, taking the 12th. He said to them, speaking directly to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So everything that the prophets have been saying since God began speaking to his people will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Prophets had to be right 100% of the time. Or else they were false prophets. Even if they were wrong one time and they were right 99, they were still false prophets. Jesus has prophesied this and then it comes to pass. Because he's a prophet. Luke 22 verse 37. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. This is the last night. Jesus is sitting in the upper room with his apostles. I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That little phrase is a direct reference. In fact, it's the clearest reference in the Gospels, in the Gospel accounts of Isaiah 53. And he was numbered among the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What Jesus is saying that I've got to suffer, I've got to die, I've got to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah uh, 53. What, the, 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 the prophecy that came 700 years prior to Jesus. Is beginning to find its fulfillment right here in these verses 63 through 65. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to and through Moses that was given all the way back in Deuteronomy. Let me just read it to you Deuteronomy 18 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, like, like Moses, a prophet who would speak on behalf of God and who would rule with God's authority. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Listen to him. Don't just hear him. Listen to him. Respond to him. Obey him. Do what he says. Trust the words coming from his mouth. But instead of listening to him, they are beating him. 
mocking him, ridiculing him. One more piece of irony that floats out of this couple of phrases is that rather than listening to him and receiving the prophet that had been sent to them, they're blaspheming him. This is the charge that they were making against him. That he was a blasphemer. That he was the one speaking truths or, or lies about God. That he was the heretic. That he was the one that had gone off the, 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 reser- the run off the reservation. That he was no longer of God's people because of the te- things that he was teaching. The things that he was saying about who he was and what he'd come to do. They were calling him a blasphemer. And in everything they were saying, they were the, actually the ones blaspheming him. Rather than listening to the prophet. They were blaspheming him. They were speaking against God by condemning him and rejecting him. Because Jesus is the promised prophet, rejecting him doesn't condemn him. It doesn't prove him wrong. It doesn't deny the truth about him. But the one who rejects him is the one who's condemned. Because Jesus is the promised prophet, rejecting him doesn't condemn him, but the one who rejects him. Next, Jesus is the Christ who has come and is coming. So we move from that night of beating and mocking and ridicule to the next morning. Remember, this is the thing, is that these Jewish leaders, they were scared to death of how the people would respond. They were scared to death of of, of what would happen if they brought Jesus in front of the masses and began to to arrest him or try him. And so, so they set everything up the night before. They go and arrest him in private. They bring him and they set the stage for for the trial the night before. And they try to bring, they try to bring uh, accusations against him and false, false witnesses against him, but none of that lines up. So the very next morning, as the council convenes, they determine what they're going to do. And they go to him and they ask him just right out, just outright. They don't even pull any punches now. No, no more standing on false accusations. No more standing on, on, on uh, the, the stories that have been, have, have been perpetrated by, by the liars. They, they go to him and they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. They just ask him straight out. Are you the Christ? And it's important that they asked him this question. The Christ, the Messiah... It's more than just a religious significance in that, in that title. Is it Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. That's not his family name, right? I don't, it's his title. It's his role. So Jesus Christ, Christ is an important term. It has religious significance because he was God's Savior. He was the one sent to redeem and, and, and bring out, lead out God's people. But it also has a political significance because he would be the king. He would establish a kingdom. And they needed Jesus to affirm his identity as the Christ so that they could take him the next, in the next step to Pilate and say, this man is, is, is standing against Rome. He is leading a rebellion. He will not bow to the throne in Rome. He will not bow to the leadership in Rome. He is seeking to establish his own kingdom. So they needed him to answer this question and and Jesus knows better than, he, I mean, he's, he's smarter than they are, right? We, we, I think we know that. I think it's fair to say he's smarter than we are. I, I think we can give him that. But he doesn't answer them directly. In fact, what he says to them is kind of, I heard it said earlier this week, it's kind of tricksy, right? Like they ask him a tricksy question and he gives them a tricksy answer. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. 
If I tell you that I am the Christ, you're not going to believe me. Why, why in the world would I admit to you that I'm the Christ? You're not going to believe it. And if I question you, if, if I begin to ask questions that demonstrate to you the truth of me being the Christ, you're not going to answer. And in fact, they'd already been proving that. All week long, Jesus came into Jerusalem, clears the temple out, begins preaching the gospel daily in the temple. And they come to him seeking to trip him up, asking him questions. And say, hey, well, what about this? What about that? What about these things? And in every case, he teaches the truth. He shuts them down. He proves that they don't know what they're talking about. And then when he begins to ask them questions back, you know what happens? They can't answer. Because he's outsmarted them. He's outwisdomed them. And so he says, I don't need to tell you. If I tell you, you're not going to believe it. If I, if I question you, you're not going to answer me. But, but you see, this isn't a denial. If he didn't deny it in this moment, then he's perpetrating a lie if it's not true. You get that, right? Jesus is the Christ who has come and is coming. This is the, this, the testimony is in. The, the, the truth is in. He affirms it here. And has been affirming it all the way through his ministry. Let me just show you one example. Luke 9, 19 through 21, Jesus is, is about to ask his apostles, like they're gathered around. He's like, who do the people say I am? And he begins this line of questioning. And let's just read it. 9, 19 through 21 says this. They answered, John the Baptist. Who do the people say I am? They answered, the apostles answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. He doesn't say no. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. You guys, have, you, you've messed, you missed it. You, I don't know what I've done that makes you think I'm the, the Messiah, that makes you think I'm the Christ. I, I need to correct that. He doesn't slow them down in believing it. In fact, in Matthew's account of that same event, he says, hey, Peter, who is the one who said it, Peter, you didn't get that by anything here. This isn't earthly wisdom. This is divine revelation. The reason you know that I'm the Christ, the Son of God, is because God has shown it to you. He affirms it. He says, yes, I am the Christ. And now here, if he had simply wanted to end this trial, all he had to say was, no, I'm not the Christ. But he doesn't. Because he is. And he doesn't have to answer to them. He doesn't have to prove it to them. The very fact of the matter is that he's walking into the truth that he's the Christ and he's going to be hung on a cross because of it. His life bears witness to the testimony that he is the Christ who has come and the Christ that is coming. Because Jesus is the Christ who has come and is coming. Rejecting him does not condemn him, but the one who rejects him. Jesus is the divine son of man. Again, as he's answering these, these Jewish people, putting, these Jewish leaders, putting him on trial, seeking to judge him. 
In the midst of this answer, to, or, or as, a, as a continuation of his answer to their question, are you the Christ? He goes on. But from now on, there's a stake in the ground. That everything's going to be different from this point forward. It's like this is, this is a marker in the timeline of the life of the Christ. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus' answer to their question, either Christ doesn't stop it at answering them directly, yes or no, but goes on to show them that there's more in store for the Son of Man, and he applies that to himself. I'm going to show you that in just a minute, but his application is to himself. This was Jesus' preferred title for himself. Like He didn't walk around tell, calling himself the Son of God very often. It's like That's not his preferred title. It wasn't his preferred title to be called the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't his preferred title to be walking around and hearing uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. His preferred title for himself, what he called himself most, was the Son of Man. 81 times across the gospel accounts, 81 times across the four gospel accounts, this title is used applying to Jesus. And one commentator points out that the, that the purpose for that is that it is, a, it is a term of humanity that pointed toward deity. What a beautiful picture of this God-man, the God who put on flesh. But it's difficult for us to see that because when we typically think of a son of man, like you're going to think of a baby that's born to me or to you or a daughter that, you know, someone that is, is of flesh and blood. Yes, that's true. But the significance of that title is rooted in the prophecies of the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, I saw in the night visions and behold when the clouds of heaven with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man in the form of the son of, of, of a son of man looking like someone in flesh and blood one came with the clouds of heaven that looked just like a man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him this son of man, this one like the son of man in the very presence of God. That can't be just another man. As we walk into his presence apart from something else and apart from his redemption and forgiveness and we burn up, we die. This one coming like the son, like a son of man presented before the ancients of days, the God and father of Jesus. Verse 14 goes on, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Listen, this is the Christ that has been promised. This is the son of man that Jesus is taking that, taking that title and applying to himself. And they hear this and they are shocked. What Jesus is saying is vital in this moment. He's allowing things to take place. He's stepping into the rejection from people that he might walk under the title of the Son of Man. And they are blown away by this. You can do what you want. You can try me if you want. You can judge me and condemn me and reject me if you want. But from now on, 
The Son of Man will sit at the right hand of God. Yes, I have to die and I have to suffer. But as a result of my death and suffering, I will step into His glory. I will step into a position of dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language would serve me. This is what Jesus is claiming. This is what Jesus is saying about Himself. It's vital. Because Jesus is the divine Son of Man. Rejecting Him doesn't condemn Him, but the one who rejects Him. The Jewish leaders, they knew their Bibles. They, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They, they may not have known how to apply their Bibles or their Scriptures. They may not have known how to, how to submit under them. But they knew what Jesus was saying. They knew the passage from Daniel. And their response to his claim to be the Son of Man shows it and affirms that Jesus was making that claim about himself. Are you saying then that you are the Son of God? Because they knew that in saying that he was the Son of Man, he was claiming a divine identity. Yes, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And his response, his response to their question is not no. That's not what I said. No, let me clarify that for you. No, I'm not the Son of God. He could have said that. But it wouldn't have been true. Instead, he says, you say that I am. And he lets them make the profession of truth for him. And he doesn't disagree with him. He doesn't disagree with them. But instead stands to be rejected by them. In fact, they receive this again as a positive affirmation of their question. And we see that in their reaction. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. Listen, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. This is the, the, the truth that Luke has been building out from the very beginning of his gospel. He is the Son of God. That's exactly what, what Gabriel announced when he spoke to Mary about this baby that she would have. He says at Luke 1, 32, He will be great. Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, the, the Son of the Most High. This is God's servant Gabriel speaking this to Mary. And now at the end of his life, affirming that truth, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm his son. When Jesus was baptized and the father spoke from heaven, Jesus didn't stand up and say, hey, be quiet up there. I don't want anybody to know. In Luke 3, 21 through 22, when all the people were baptized and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. The son of God standing in front of these people being put on trial. They're longing, demanding for him to reject this truth. And because he won't, they will reject him. 
You are my beloved son, God said. With you I am well pleased. And then on the mountain of transfiguration, God the Father spoke out loud again. Luke 9.35 says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And can I just draw a parallel for you? Back to Deuteronomy 18 where God says, I will raise up a prophet like Moses. What did he say to do? Listen to him. And here he is speaking of his son on this mountain. Listen. Listen to him. Don't just hear the words. Believe the words. Don't just let them hit your eardrums. Trust them. Obey them. Let them influence your life. Do not reject them. Believe them. But here are these Jewish leaders. They can't accept it. They won't accept it. And this final claim for Jesus was enough that we don't need to hear another thing. He has just condemned himself. Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God, because it is affirmed, because it is true, rejecting Him doesn't condemn Him. It doesn't condemn Jesus, but the one who rejects Jesus. And this left these, the, it left these, these Jewish people with a question, left these, these Jewish people with a, a need to respond, and they did. And in the same way it left them with a need to respond, it leaves everyone who hears it with a choice. Facing a question. See, how will we respond to the truth of Jesus' divine identity? How will we respond? How will I respond? See, somewhere along the way, I don't know when it happened, Christians began to talk about Jesus as if Jesus owed us some answer. And Jesus hadn't done enough to prove himself to us. We've begun to live our lives in such a way that, that we don't act like we really believe it. Oh, we go to church on Sunday. We read, in, we read the Bible in our home and pray with our kids before they go to bed. But where the rubber really meets the road, where we might actually carry the cost of some of this rejection. We'll often choose to deny the truth of Jesus' identity and his mission so that we're not rejected by the people we come face to face with every day. See, somewhere along the way, we began to believe that Jesus didn't provide enough truth for us or for those outside the church. And we've allowed Jesus to be put on trial time and time again. See, we felt like we had to have all the answers. When Jesus is the answer, 
And he's proven himself beyond any shadow of a doubt. Jesus doesn't need your defense. You are not his eternity attorney. You are simply his witness. We can preach Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who came to save us from our sins, who gives us hope for all eternity. Jesus has done enough. It's time to quit doubting his identity and cowering behind some other mission and give ourselves to him. To live every day. To live every day in the truth of who he is. Serving him. Trusting him. Listening to him. Because Jesus has affirmed his divine identity, rejection of him gives way to rejection from him. We cannot reject Jesus and think we will be received in heaven. It it doesn't go that way. It doesn't happen that way. Listen, Philip Ryken draws this out clearly, and I think it's a beautiful statement. So I just will fall to him and rely on him to help you see this. The time will come when everyone who judges Jesus will be judged by him. We do not judge God. He judges us. Many people get this backwards. As they start to investigate religion, they assume that the real question is what they think about Jesus rather than what Jesus thinks about them. Jesus doesn't need you to accept him. But you need him to accept you. He needs, you need And he demands you to believe him and to repent of his sin, of your sin. Because Jesus has affirmed his divine identity, the only acceptable response is repentance and faith expressed in obedience. This is not a one-time thing. This is not a thing. I did it when I was a kid. I said this prayer and I, I... I confessed I was a sinner and then I just kind of went my own way and I'll figure it out one day and, and, and finally Jesus will be there to save me in the end. It's not a one-time thing. This is the mark of the Christian life. Day in, day out, growing repentance, changing our minds about the, 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 the reception in the world. I want to be received in the world because that makes me feel good. That's going to make me okay if I'm received here. It's a lie. If you're received in the world, you are rejecting Jesus. There's no way around it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's promised rejection in the world if you receive him, if you walk with him. Repent of the lie. Quit believing the lie. Quit, Quit believing the lie that if in some way you have all the answers, then that's when you can finally begin to witness of him. He's proven his life. Repent of the ideas that that, that, that you think that in some way if if I'm rejected that that means I've done something wrong. No, he said you will be rejected. In fact, it's his gift to you that you're rejected by the world. I don't know how that works. But Philippians tells us it's been granted to us to believe and to suffer for his sake. Repent of the idea that some way rejection from the world equates to to suffering for eternity. Believe the truth of God. That Jesus is the prophet promised. That he came to reveal the truth of God. That he is the Christ. That he is the divine son of man. That he is the eternal son of God. Believe it. Believe it. 
not just intellectually in your mind, but such that it begins to influence how you think, how you feel, what you desire, the motives of your heart, and then by way of all those things, what you do in your life. This is not just a one-time thing, but a day-in, day-out kind of thing. Well, how do I know? You see it in your actions. This week when you face rejection, when you face the opportunity to be rejected because you want to speak the truth about Christ, what will you believe? How do you know what you believe? Because of what you end up doing. When you face criticism, people laugh at you and mock you because you are a Bible thumper, Jesus freak, whatever you want to call it, because you're a Christian, what will you do when they laugh at you and mock you? How will you respond? Let me just close with this one thought because I know that this is a high call, a difficult call, a real challenge to our lives because I feel the fear of rejection just like you. J.C. Ryle gives this idea. He points us to, to look at the hope we have. The same Jesus who was mocked, despised, and crucified. The one who was rejected. The same Jesus who was mocked, despised, and crucified is one who has all power in heaven and earth and will one day come again in his Father's glory with all his angels. We see but half the truth if we see nothing but the cross and the first coming of a Christ. It is essential for our own comfort. It is essential for our own comfort to also see the second coming of Christ and the crown. Jesus is our reigning king and he is coming to end the rejection that you and I endure so that we can live forever in his presence, never to be separated from him again. And so we can endure the rejection today for the hope of what he's promised tomorrow. Let's pray. Father God, you are gracious and good to us. We do not deserve you. We know you are not obligated to act on our behalf. We can never pay you back for what you have done. But will you help us walk courageously and boldly in the truth? Not being jerks just to be jerks. But with the compassion and concern of Christ for those who are condemned, would you lead us to walk boldly and courageously, calling people to repent of trying or putting Jesus on trial because they just don't think he did enough when he's done it all. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.